Welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. Me, Joe Hamia. And today we launch a new miniseries called The Booker at the Oscars, cunningly timed to run between the recently announced Oscar nominations for this year and the Oscar ceremony. We'll be looking at three Booker novels and the films made out of them that went on to Oscar glory. Or in one case, The Remains of the Day very nearly did, given that it was nominated for eight awards in 1994 but didn't actually win any mainly because of the book and novel that dominated the academy awards that year and is our subject this week uh, people who like booker quizzes and let's face it who doesn't will also know that this was the first ever booker winning novel to become a movie that won the best picture oscar and it won several more besides because it's altogether quizzes steven spielberg's schindler's list as adapted from thomas Keneally's schindler's arc and for a bonus point for those quizzes this was spielberg's second adaptation of a booker novel after Empire of the Sun, that was the hot favourite in 1984, lost out to Hotel du Lac by Anita Bruckner. But just before we get on to that, I can't resist proudly noting in passing that there's a book a link to the Oscars this year too, although maybe a slightly more tenuous one. Uh, American fiction, nominated in five categories, including Best Picture, is based on Percival Everett's novel Erasure, a favourite book of Joe's, as regular listeners will know, and Everett was shortlisted in 2022 or the trees. That counts as a booker connection, doesn't it, Joe? Yes, it does. I'm more concerned with the fact that it just prompts everyone to read Erasure. Everyone should read Erasure. <laughs> anyway, let's get on to where Spielberg's triumph all began, Schindler's Ark, the novel, with Schindler's List, the film, to follow in part two of today's podcast. So, James, what can you tell me about uh, Schindler's Ark author, Thomas Keneally? I can tell you that he was born in 1935 uh, to two Irish Australians, Grew up in Kempsey, a small town in New South Wales, and then Homebush, a suburb of Sydney. And then, uh, rather importantly in his life, age 17, he went off to a seminary to become a Catholic priest, which he almost did, uh, staying in the seminary for six years and leaving only just before he was due to be ordained. Apparently, he had a loss of faith, a fairly solid reason for leaving, I suppose, um, caused by the sheer unkindness of the uh, church leaders that he was surrounded with. uh, This resulted in something of a breakdown, and he entered the 1960s feeling, uh, quote, pretty lost. He moved back in with his parents, did some teaching in a part-time law course. But then, Joe, came two big breaks. First, he had a novel accepted for publication, a place at Witten, based on his seminary experiences. Second, his mum gave it to a night nurse to read, and the nurse loved it, asked to meet the author, and married him a year later. And Keneally and Judy, herself a former nun, uh, have been married ever since. Uh, Meanwhile, the books have kept coming at a fair old speed. Now written more than 40 novels, more than 20 works of non-fiction, mainly on Australian history, five plays and three screenplays. As for his book of form, which obviously we're obsessed by on this podcast, he was shortlisted three times for The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, Gossip from the Forest and Confederates, before winning with Schindler's Ark in 1982, published in America as Schindler's List, hence the name of the film. Uh, incidentally, the ever-modest Keneally thinks that uh, An Ice Cream War by William Boyd should have won that year, uh, as in fact did the chair of judges, uh, Professor John Carey. Anyway, uh, on a happier note, one of the... Uh, Keneally's later books that I particularly commend to our listeners is a book called The Daughters of Mars from 2012. Unbelievably powerful novel about two Australian nurses in the First World War, which also tackles the great Australian founding myth of Gallipoli. And so all in all, it's no wonder that uh, Keneally was made a national living treasure in Australia, where that's an, an official thing. 
um, appointments made by the Australian National Trust. Uh, other national living treasures. Some of them are dead now, but anyway, they were national living treasures when they weren't. Uh, <laughs> include uh, Russell Crowe, Kathy Freeman, Nicole Kidman, and of course, Kylie Minogue. Uh, and uh, we, now we've both interviewed uh, Thomas Keneally, haven't we, in our, in our, in our time? Yeah. Uh, the world's most genial man, do you think? Yeah. Wait, was your interview in person? Yeah. See, you've got one up on me because all of my communication with him was either over Zoom or email. Uh, yes, in post-COVID so. days. No, I, I, I met him. He's the only author I've ever interviewed who showed me the pictures of his grandchildren. Yeah. And, uh, and he was also talking about how basically he wanted to be a writer to impress the poms, he kept saying. <laughs> so he, he, he said at one point, if I could have scored 150 before tea at Lord's, that would have been better. But you do what you, you, do what you can. Was he just as genial over Zoom? He was so lovely. I mean, we emailed for just under a year and had a handful of Zoom calls because I interviewed him for the Booker Prize. You can find the interview on our YouTube channel and on the Booker Prize website. I'm yeah. sure I meant to say that somewhere in here. Well done, Joe. But yeah, no, he's so generous with his conversation, but he you can pretty much talk to him about anything and like he'll go on at length, but not in a boring way at all. But I think one of the best kind of conversations I remember with him and something that he talks about a lot, I'm not special by any means, is just his feelings about the Australian Aboriginal community yeah. and I, I think he describes himself as a kind of Euro Australian or like empire adjacent Australian and he's very very firm in his kind of anti-empire anti-colonialist kind of stance and it's just really fascinating to hear him it, it, it's never that he he talks to you with a particularly moral stance it's just he's so clear in himself where he stands and he kind of opens himself out to you, for, for you to respond yeah. to that. I, I found that really beautiful in him and quite pertinent for the book that we're discussing today. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was a leader of the, still is probably, of the Republican movement in mm. basically getting rid of her. His Majesty, can you believe, <laughs> uh, in Australia. And, and there's a traditional fault line, isn't there, in Australian society between Irish descendants of the Irish, essentially yeah. descendants of convicts and descendants of English essentially descendants of warders <laughs> and uh, he's very much on the Irish side of that and of course one of the stories that he is invited to tell in every interview and I think we both probably did <laughs> do it as well is um, the origin story of his most famous book Schindler's Ark so yes. let's hear him telling it to you I believe Joe just to set it up he's flying back um, to Australia and uh, changes planes in LA his briefcase breaks and he happens to go into a shop to uh, get it replaced here we go I went to buy a briefcase. As I looked in a, a, a bag shop called the Handbag Studio, a burly man of middle age emerged and he said, uh, so it's 105 degrees uh, out here and you won't come in to my air-conditioned store? Are you scared of me? This man turned out to be a survivor amongst the Schindler Juden. I entered and uh, the store, the owner of the store, Leopold Pfefferberg, uh, said, um, what are you doing in Beverly Hills? I told him I was staying around the corner, that I'd been doing a bit of, been to a film festival, doing a book, bit of book promotion. He began to tell me then, soon after, that he was a Holocaust survivor. 
He first asked me, did I know certain people in Sydney? So I didn't know his Jewish friends, and he said, they and I uh, were rescued by uh, a Nazi. But although he was a Nazi, he saved us. So to me, he's Jesus Christ. But a saint, he wasn't. And then the story began. At that point in the interview, I can remember Tom telling me that Paul Duck had taken him to, to a finding cabinet that was essentially full of like World War II. I don't know if memorabilia is the right word because it was full of sort of like SS cables and They're all relating letters. to Schindler. Yeah, yeah, all relating to Schindler. And then most famously, um, the list itself, Oscar Schindler's list of Jews to be saved. Story has been a little bit embellished over the years mm. because. Um, well, one thing he told me when he told me that story, which which I did like, is that Pfefferberg said to him, "What what you you know, making conversation?" and said to him, "What do you do?" and he says, "I'm a novelist," and he says, "Oh, I've got a story for you." At which point, Thomas Keneally's heart completely sinks because that's what people always say. Mm-hmm. And then Pfefferberg tells him all about Schindler, and he realizes he's got the plot for his by far his greatest book. Um, yes, op- opinion seems to be divided as to whether actually Schindler's list was in that book in the, in that safe. Though he did tell me it was. What's quite interesting is it's on Wikipedia and it's got a footnote and I thought, oh, that's interesting. So maybe it was there after all. Look at the footnote and it says uh, interview with James Walton. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly that's the basics. He gets all all the documentation, all the evidence, and the perfect plot that he needs. This 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 guy who was not you know saintly, but who did save all these people. Well, I think this intermingling of um, fact and potential embellishment is perfect for for the book we're about to discuss it was of course a, a massive point of contention whether schindler's arc the novel was actually a a novel at all whether it qualified for the booker prize although i i think that there's really no question about it but still this idea of sort of embellishing upon fact is central to the book just in case there's anybody there who doesn't doesn't know uh or, or maybe just knows the film and that they're massively different they are different in some ways and just give yeah. us a quick summary of, summary of the book well the the book partially revolves around this character of Oscar Schindler, who is uh, many ways to describe him, actually an entrepreneur, a womanizer, a bon vivant, uh, but crucially a, a member of the German Nazi party by 1939, who installs himself in Krakow um, and sees the rise of the, of the Nazi regime as an opportunity to make money. Um, in Krakow, he uh, decides to take over uh, a bankrupt enamelware uh, factory um, and to exploit essentially newly enforced slave labor uh, whilst all the Jews are sort of ghettoized within their own community. I suppose the kind of heart of the story or the emotional heart of the story is this gradual, well, this is a point of contention with me and you, James, yeah, but to is, me, yeah. this this sort of gradual overcoming of Schindler's sort of entrepreneurial and capitalist instincts into making his factory uh, into a haven for what became known as the Schindler Jews. Because by about the middle or three quarters of the book, uh, the options for these Jews are essentially either go to a concentration camp and very likely die, or um, go to Schindler's Enamelware factory where you will be fed, you won't be beaten, um, you will still essentially be a slave, but your life is secure. The other thing about the book, I suppose, is that it it does sort of function at the same time as a kind of um, history book or a documentary in the sense. There are a lot of 
cutaways to individual characters or families, Polish families um, within the novel who suffered under Hitler's regime. Um, I should probably say from the top that these characters are so numerous and their stories are so sort of nuanced and multifaceted that we probably likely will not have time to go into them in very great detail. We may pull out one or two. But the book is essentially a kind of almost documentary style account of the Second World War in Poland and of the Holocaust in Krakow centrally. Um told partially through the eyes of Oskar Schindler. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he says, says on page one uh, uh, of this book, I have attempted to avoid all fiction since fiction would debase the record. Now, I, I, I was around in 1982 and that was yeah, yeah, a book of controversy, like most book of controversies, even more than most, actually. This one could manufactured, I thought. But the question was, was this actually a non-fiction book? And if so, should it have won a, the best novel of the year? You, you're right, it, it's, it, it feels like a novel, doesn't it? It's got the it does. I think there, is, there are certain things that really give it away as a as a novel um although uh in a in the after afterward in my edition Keneally does write that he decided from the top that the tone of the novel would be adjacent to Truman Capote's In Cold Blood oh, so I suppose yeah. which you, is it was described as a non-fiction novel isn't it? yes so I suppose your feelings about Capote might uh, uh your feelings about In Cold Blood would dictate yeah. your feelings about whether or not Schindler's Ark is a novel and then and also, who cares, basically? <laughs> I think we should factor in. Um, but let's get into this bone of contention between us then. Let's, let's yes. not mess about. <laughs> I, I, I would maintain that in the film, mm. Schindler's List, which we'll be doing in part two, there is a, uh, an absolute, you, you know, there is an your actual Hollywood narrative arc. Schindler goes on a journey. His eyes are slowly open to what's happening to the Jews and he, and he turns from a sort of villainous entrepreneur into, uh, into the sort of saviour, really. Yes. Um, but I think... In the book, that's that's less true, mm -hmm. I suppose. So we first meet him, actually, unlike the film, it starts off halfway through before we flash back. So it starts in August 1943 when he's having, uh, he's hobnobbing with various Nazis. Uh, but we already know he's not like them. He's, for a start, he's nice to the Jewish servant girl who's being badly mistreated by the commandant. Eamon Goethe is a double-dyed villain. Yeah. We then flash back to his early childhood in Czechoslovakia, in, in, in German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia where he's um, friends with Jewish children. He then meets Isaac Stern, who's going to help him buy the factory and run the factory. He's an accountant who was involved in the old factory, I think. And straight away, uh, Stern um, senses what, uh, what, he, what he calls a just goy. Goy, obviously, Jewish word for Gentile. And, and he's right. We sense a just goy, too. Again and again, Keneally keeps saying that he's um, you know, an incredibly ambiguous figure and morally ambiguous. But even then... Let me just give you a couple of examples. So one of the flaws he gives him is that he's womanizing. But mm. then he says, but there's this to be said for him, that to all his women, he was a well-mannered and generous lover. And then, then he talks about his drinking. Like few others, he was capable of staying canny when drinking. He, he never got hangovers. He chain smokes, but it was a composed chain smoking. There was never tension in his hand. He was stylish. Right from the start, and both Keneally and us think, on the whole, what a guy. Or if you want it to be uh, hilarious, what a goy. Um, but you think you think there's more of an arc in, in and, and I think in the film, that arc you're talking about is 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 much clearer than than in the book where he's basically a, a decent and not all that ambiguous figure all the way through. Actually, I I think that it's that's not the right equivocation in a way. I think definitely in the in the film, and we'll come on to that in part two, that there is way more of an arc of 
sort of a journey a journey <laughs> um you know that essentially begins uh after um he witnesses after Shinda witnesses uh kind of massacre on the streets of Krakow that um leads to the installation of the Poshov camp and and from that point in the film you you see these sort of hesitant steps forwards to him thinking should I save this person should I not we'll come on to that in the book I think by page 150 we are quite clear that it's Oscar's explicit intent to save as many people as he can and whereas that is not clear in the film but I think the thing that makes him so ambiguous in the novel is the means by which he is able to to save these people. There is a line when um, Amon Goethe is introduced. He's the commandant, yeah. Yes, uh, he, he is the person who who runs um, the Poishov camp. Um, there is a line from Keneally that Amon is essentially Oscar's dark brother, that they have a sort of similar upbringing and similar appetites. They've got appetites for money, appetites for women, appetites for um, a certain kind of power. Um, over people the difference is how they choose to exercise those appetites yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think the ambiguity in Schindler's character is sort of um, in the fact that he he is still reaching into these darker parts of himself in order to con a system and the word con I don't think he's ever explicitly referred to as a con man but the idea of him conning people is constantly referred to of course we think of this in a very good way because he's he's conning Nazis out of killing Jews but there's a kind of coldness to him and a kind of emotional remove that he needs to access in order to achieve that and I think for me it's it's so clear in several passages you know that he's doing this for good reasons this justification because he wants to save people but the justification is just so cruel is it's the fact that he speaks Goethe's language or in this case a, a SS officer called Toffel he's trying to prevent Nazi intervention in his enamelware factory and this exchange goes um, as a result of such conversations Oscar became an advocate of the principle that a factory owner should have unimpeded access to his own workers that these workers should have access to the plant that they should not be detained or tyrannized on their way to and from the factory it was in Oscar's eyes a moral axiom as much as an industrial one in the end he would apply it to its limit at Deutsche Emel Fabrik so this idea that he has to have this kind of moral sense of himself working at the same time as the kind of capitalist industrialist sense to me makes him he's very obviously a person working on the side of the good but a person who is exercising certain um base instincts in order to work on the side of the good and actually the the part of the book that I loved the most it's such a small small detail um that enables him to do this is um at, at for a lot of the book, he has an affair with his secretary, Victoria Kolonovska. And um, he, there's a point where he buys his three lovers, his wife and two other women. Um, he buys Kolonovska a 
Ragnall, which is a far more extravagant gift than the ones he gets for his wife or his other Ooh, bit lover. Actually, bit love actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so he buys Klonowska this poodle and he's been bedding her and, and she likes him very much. And, you know, um, but then at a certain point on one of his birthdays, he gets uh, arrested. I think at that point for, for kissing a Jewish girl on the factory floor. Uh, so he gets put in, in jail and um, at that point treated fairly well by SS officers, although subsequent arrests are a bit shakier. Um, but he says to Klonowska, you will have to cancel certain appointments of mine. And he gives her a list of names to reach out to to get him out of prison. And she does so. And this is sort of like her first truly big task to get Oscar Schindler out of jail without any kind of suspicion that he may be saving Jews. And when he comes out of jail, he gets into a car where Klonowska is waiting for him. And the poodle is right next to her. And to me, this poodle is such a great image because you think, you know, for all the, you know, you know, I'm sure very wonderful sex that they might have been having, you know that she's not sort of, she's not in love with him. The reason that she has been so happy to work for him, as with many of German agents in the book, is because he can provide this kind of largesse, this poodle, these cigarettes, that silk shirt, you know, that enamel wear. I don't, I don't doubt that he is a man working in for a good cause what's ambiguous to me is the extent to which his own personal morality is what drives that versus his love of money and ability to run a business no but in the end he gives up he basically spends, yeah he goes bankrupt yeah he goes end, bankrupt yeah. saving jews yeah i'll give you a, there's there's a ambiguity to his his methods well, i think the listener can make up their minds they really can and now joe there's what um I've sort of nicknamed in my uh, literary pretentious way the Oliver Twist problem with Schindler's Ark, or the possible Oliver you're, Twist problem. You're going to have to tell me what that means. I will tell you what that means. So Oliver Twist sets up, shows the unbelievable um, systematic institutional injustice of the workhouse system and treatment of boys like Oliver. And then basically it's all right in the end because one guy is nice to Oliver, yeah. who turns out to be middle class. <laughs> so, so it's okay after all. But uh, leaving that last point aside, so, this, so, so one, person, one person is is saved and that that means the book has a happy ending yeah um now obviously you've got this problem with 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 schindler's arc and, and in schindler's list and i think both Keneally and and um and uh spielberg. spielberg um face up to it and discuss it but it's it's there all the same isn't it one of the phrases that runs through the book is is from the talmud which um stern says to um uh to schindler uh he who saves one man saves the entire world yeah now a, that's clearly not true. <laughs> I don't want to be harsh. Uh, but B... Argue the, with Talmudic <laughs> verse on this but, podcast, James will get cancelled. No, but B, the whole of the book demonstrates that that's not true because mm. it doesn't save the world. There's, there are all those scenes like, for example, where he wants to get one, one of his guys off the train. Uh, well, in the book, it's like 12 people. Yeah, okay. <laughs> every, every now and then. He, but there's one, there's one where he wants to get... In the film, it's Sturm, but in, in, the, in, the, in the book, it's uh, Bankier. Um, his his, Jew, his his office manager. So he realizes he's been put on one of the trains going to Auschwitz, and he goes running along, and he gets um, him off the train. I mean, then the train pulls off with thousands of people going to their deaths. Yes, this is acknowledged by 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 uh, Keneally. He says it was fortunate for Abraham, that's Bankier, that Oscar did not ask himself why it was Bankier's name he called. That he did not pause and consider that Bankier's had only equal value to all the other names loaded aboard the rolling stock. An existentialist might have been defeated by the numbers, stunned by the equal appeal of all names and voices. Herr Schindler was a philosophic innocent. He knew the people he knew. There were, I think, two, maybe three bits in the novel 
that were deeply, deeply interesting to me that I think feed into your so-called Oliver Twist problem, where Oscar is essentially, he has need of comfort from people who are in much more dire situations than he is. So my favourite one, because it's probably as close to comedy as this book comes, is a moment just after halfway in when the assassination attempt on Hitler's life has occurred and everyone is waiting by the radio to see whether he's alive, to see whether the Fuhrer will make any kind of speech that will prove he's alive. And Oscar whips himself up to a into a frenzy, believing that Hitler must be dead. You know, it's been hours since we've heard any kind of confirmation that he's alive. You know, they must be attempting to conceal the fact that he was successfully murdered. And in the end, of course, Hitler's voice does come on the radio. And there's this really, really interesting passage. As he's doing this with a with a man called Adam Gard, who who is a, a Schindler Jew. But Oscar had been believing in the death with a feverish conviction for hours now, and when it turned out to be an illusion, it was young Gard who found himself cast as the comforter, while Oscar spoke with an almost operatic grief. All our vision of deliverance is futile, he said. He poured another glass of cognac each, then pushed the bottle across the desk, opening his cigarette box. Take the cognac and some cigarettes and get some sleep. We'll have to wait a little longer for our freedom. In the confusion of the cognac, of the news and of its sudden reversal in the small hours, Gard did not think it strange that Oscar was talking about our freedom, as if they had an equivalent need, were both prisoners who had to wait passively to be liberated. So it's like this recurring thing sometimes. There's a, there's another point earlier in the book where Stern has to comfort Oscar because he doesn't want him to be so demoralised that he stops running the factory. That um, Oscar, sort of, by today's standards, millionaire, you know, free man um, at his leisure, has to be comforted by an enslaved and downtrodden person. I think it's an, an interesting conundrum that Keneally deals with in the book's form that although the thing that makes this story interesting is a Nazi official, a free man, a to whatever extent morally ambiguous man, there's this bigger picture of people who are actually suffering and where do you place the weight I guess the emotional weight. <laughs> I, re- I read that completely different. I read that passage as proof of just again how great Schindler is that it, he is as much uh, trapped as the Jews. But but you're right, he, he's not. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite clearly. Uh, uh, but but the fact that he feels that he is. Mm. So right at the end, there's big set set piece speech, which is again slightly different from in the film when the factory is about to close because the Russians are approaching. They're about to be liberated. This is when the factory has been moved, and he makes a speech in which he tells the SS gods who are still there, although he's sort of kept them at arm's length from, from, from his factory, that you know, you're as much imprisoned as, as, the, as the Jews are. And I think we're meant to think that's really great, aren't we? But you think, actually, no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, but I think this is sort of like as much a conundrum for Keneally as a writer in shaping this novel in order to sustain the reader's interest right. as it is a, a kind of, you know, crucial to the plot kind of conundrum. Okay, maybe maybe here's the, here's the kind of synthesis. Right at the end, he saves 30 tinsmiths. And Kennedy says they were merely a fragment of the 10,000. And because of that, it must be said again that Oscar was only a minor god of rescue. <laughs> but still the word god. Uh, that, that, so, but, but, but a minor god of rescue. And maybe we get on to another thing that the book 
I think certainly achieves we can't we're not going to disagree on this <laughs> even us Joe um which is it works to restore in a way the unimaginability of the holocaust yeah so all the all the way through every terrible thing that happens the 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 Jews um kind of think well it's not going to get any worse than this okay this is it um and right at the start, they're quite convinced that they'll always need us because one in 11 Poles are Jewish, you know. Um, then a lot of them are moved out of Krakow um, and they say to each other, we'll do this and that will be the brunt of what they ask. Then the ghetto is set up, which is you know, terrible enough. And they say, we'll be inside. But I say, they'll say, one, one person says, we'll be inside. The enemy will be inside. We can run our own affairs. No one will envy us. No one will stone us in the streets. The walls of the ghetto will be fixed. The walls will be final fixed form of the catastrophe. Mm. To flash off, so then the ghetto's liquidized, they move to flash off. At least we've got work, we're in a camp now. And yet it's all building up to the thing that nobody can imagine. And in fact, when the first reports, someone has found out what's what's happening further east in Auschwitz, and comes back and explains and uh, you know, tells t- they say what, what what's happening. And then Kennedy breaks off to say, To write these things now is to state the commonplaces of history. But to find them out in nineteen forty two to have them break upon you from a June sky was to suffer a fundamental shock, a derangement in that area of the brain in which stable ideas about humankind and its possibilities are kept. And I, I think I think is is very good on that. And also the, the politics of that, actually, because one thing, the many good things Schindler does, he's, he occasionally goes to Budapest and Istanbul to report to Zionists mm-hmm. uh, what's going on in Europe mm-hmm. or what's going on um, in, in, in Poland. And essentially, again, they won't believe him. It cannot be imagined that that this is going to happen. And and we know from other reports that actually that was one of the great, I mean, it's a hideous thing to say, but one of the great sort of clever tricks of Auschwitz is when people are arriving on trains, it's unimaginable that they were just going to be sent into gas chambers. Mm. And that made it possible to do. Sorry. <laughs> I know, I know that we, we like to keep it light on this podcast, Joe, but, um, but uh, I, I, I suppose I haven't left you much to... To, no, to, to make I'm of that though, because I'm on the verge of tears, actually. <laughs> but, but that, but, but that, that restoration of the unimaginability of it all, I think, is a yeah. very, is absolutely brilliantly done in the book. Yeah. Um, the only thing I would add to that before we segue into our conversation about the film is the the specific way in which it's achieved, and I think the paragraph you read about the unimaginability of of this at the time versus you know the fact that it's commonplace now to believe is that. Keneally on a sentence level is is so deft with how he positions his readers. It happens on on page one in like the third paragraph of the book. In fact, you become aware that um, that actually you're part of the novel as reader. So the book opens on this scene of um, Schindler exiting a car in 1943 onto icy ground and his chauffeur cracks a joke with him. And then sort of in the middle of that, uh, Keneally says, in observing this small winter scene, we are on safe ground. And with that, he kind of signals to you that... there is a particular mode of attention that you have to sustain throughout this book. You That yes, you are on the one hand reading a novel, but it's very much based in fact and based in a lot of, a lot of modes of supposition or assumption that you may already have about the Second World War or about the Holocaust itself. And so every so often he's very careful to kind of 
lift you out of the text with a few sentences and this very sort of documentary like yeah. nature yeah, yeah. refer to the audience as we include himself in that and kind of adjust your focus in a way that reminds you you know yes you may have learned about this in school yes you know this is probably something that you've had in the background of your education or general cultural historical knowledge but here i am giving it to you again in this particular way yeah okay well i think there's a lot that we can pick up on stay with us we'll be back in part two Okay, welcome back to part two, where, as promised, we're moving on from Schindler's Ark by Thomas Keneally to Schindler's List, Steven Spielberg's film in our Booker at the Oscars series, episode one. Um, just a little bit of background to the film um, is that um, Spielberg was sent a review of the novel when it came out, actually, so it, and, and then the novel itself by the head of MCA Entertainment, who later became head of Universal, which made the film in the end. This was 1982, and he didn't feel ready to make the film at that point. I think he just felt he was too young for such a massive story. It was only 10 years later when um, Universal, he had another go with Universal. And one of the sort of other things in film history, really, is that the studio agreed to fund Schindler's List um, on condition that he made um, Jurassic Park first that same year. So he was given three times the budget. He was given 22 million for Schindler's List, but first 66 million to make Jurassic Park, which had to be made first. So in fact, that ended up with, must have been one of the oddest experiences in the history of filmmaking. Old uh, Spielberg over uh, in Europe filming um, Schindler's List by day and um, editing Jurassic Park by night. Uh, quite, I mean, quite an, quite an achievement in filmic terms. Um, and it starred, uh, starring as Oscar Schindler himself was the then comparatively unknown Liam Neeson, uh, with Ralph, Rafe Fiennes as Eamon Gerd, the uh, villainous commandant, and completing a completing trio of Brits, Joe, come on. Uh, ben Kingsley as Isaac Stern, who's um, Schindler's uh, main sidekick in the factory. Uh, and as well as sidekick is a bit of a nod. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, yes, the side... right hand man, maybe. Yeah, okay, yeah, yes, okay, yes, yeah. so, no, fair, well, no, fair point. Well, 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 point. Yeah, okay, uh, sidekick. Uh, okay, yes, uh, right hand man, comrade, D well, slave. <laughs> and bloke does all the work as well, <laughs> as acknowledged. Uh, while uh, while uh, while Schindler sort of hands out the hands out the brandy and fags, mm. but anyway, uh, so it won a lot of Oscars, uh, as as we mentioned, best picture, best director for Spielberg, best adapted screenplay. Stephen Zalian, uh, though none for the actors. In 2008, the American Film Institute na named it the eighth best American film of all time, that being back in the days when Citizen Kane was always at number one. And uh, the film led directly to the establishment also of the Shoah Foundation yeah. by Spielberg himself to educate people about Holocaust and other genocides, mainly through the testimony of survivors. But um, Joe, the acclaim has been entirely universal. Lord Landsman, who made the epic and highly influential nine-hour documentary Shoah, um, which some people might have seen called it kitschy melodrama. Mm. I think it was Stan Stanley Kubrick. You think it was someone else who said that, think that's about the Holocaust? That was about success, wasn't it? The Holocaust is about six million people who get killed. Schindler's List is about 600 who don't, um, which is the wrong number, actually. It's 1,100 who don't, but, but uh, that's suppose that I think does it's return just us to, pithier, isn't it? <laughs> does return us to Oliver Twist problem, I suppose. So, so where, where, do, where do you stand on that, Joe, on the film? See, I have very mixed feelings about the film. The ways in which... Spielberg translates elements of Keneally's novel successfully kind of make it a weaker film <laughs> and the ways in which Spielberg sort of 
goes off and does his own thing, even though allegedly he spent the entire um, shoot insisting that it wasn't going to be a Spielbergian film, that he wasn't going to rely on his so-called bag of tricks, is where it actually sort of um, succeeds more for me. Um, I will say to anyone who hasn't seen Schindler's List and wants to by the end of listening to this episode, it, it would be unfair of us not to warn you that it's an extremely brutal, graphic, horrific film. I think it, in a way it's sort of more successful than Keneally's book because the slaughter in it is so graphic. But then that sort of documentary style that we were talking about towards the end of part one of Canini sort of plucking the reader out above the text and refocusing the way in which they read was sort of the film's downfall for me. I thought of the film in two ways. This may be a bit odd, but to me, there was the kind of documentary style and then there was the there were intimate moments. I thought was, we probably should say people because I should have said it at the beginning and of this bit and I forgot. Um, it's in black and white. Yes, which, it is which the studio had big reservations about, but Spielberg insisted on. No, I think the black and white works. Yeah. In fact, the very famous instance of color, which we will talk about, the girl in the red coat, to yeah. me feels kitschy and feels Hollywood. That doesn't work for me. But I think the kind of shots where Spielberg is essentially taking these. Um, vast passages that Keneally invests so much time and care into of individual stories within the camp and he kind of plonks them into the film they tend to happen in as a sort of wide shot and they tend to involve some form of you know you know someone's being shot in the back of the head you know prisoners are being made to run around the camp the camps are being built people are shoveling snow um or you know a truckload of children is being um driven out to Auschwitz um there's no doubt that the the things these scenes are depicting are horrific but that kind of documentary style distance I would expect to cry at a film like Schindler's List but it just felt so sort of dry to me it's not that I wanted to cry or the success of it sort of made me or that, you know, I thought it it would only be successful if I cried. But there was just this very kind of sounds awful to say, dead. And not in a not in a kind of, you know, I, I've numbed my I I feel numb in response to this, just kind of dead like I wonder what the next scene is going to be kind of feeling when these moments occur. <laughs> but I will say my feelings are mixed because I think what Spielberg does really well is sometimes he will give you these incredibly intimate moments where I think the the brutality of what happens in Poitrof is it hits way harder. So for me, a really good example of this is when Ray finds as Eamon Goethe is talking to his maid, Helen Hirsch, and he's having this very one-sided conversation with her where she is utterly silent because she doesn't know what, you know, if she says one word, it might be the word that kills her. I would like so much to reach out and touch you in your loneliness. What, 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 that, what would that be like, I wonder? I mean, <laughs> what would be wrong with that? And I, I realize that you're not 
a, a person in the, the strictest sense of the word, but I mean, well, maybe you're right about that too. You know, maybe what's what's wrong isn't it's not us. It's it's, you know, it's this. I mean, when when they compare you to to vermin and to rodents and to lice. I just uh... no, no. You, you make a good point. <laughs> make a very good point. Is this the face of a rat? Are these the eyes of a rat? Hath not a Jew eyes? No, I don't think so. You're a Jewish bitch. You nearly talked me into it, didn't you? So Ray finds is just circling her yeah, around this. Yeah, I think it's a basement or an attic. Yeah, I can't yeah, remember which. Think, yeah. He's just circling her as as her as the man who is imprisoning her, talking this delusional nonsense about how perhaps he might love her. He's very fond of her. If she ever needs a reference after the war, he's more than happy to give one. Yeah. Helen is a good person. And then without her uttering a word, it turns and he goes, oh, "No, you're a Jew. You're a bitch. You know, excuse my language." and ends up beating her. But the beating isn't the horrific part of that scene. To me, the horrific part of that scene are these really close shots of Helen Hirsch and Amon Gus character and the kind of tension that's building because you know that he's going to hurt her. Um, similarly, there's a scene um, where certain certain camp members are being taken like cattle to to, I think to Auschwitz and they're discussing the possibility that they might be gassed, but the way it's shot is like a sleepover that, you know, they're kind of like on their leaning forward on their elbows, exchanging right. rumors, like swapping rumors, like they're kind of at a party going, well, I heard this. I heard this. Someone told me this. I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend. It's like gossip. And it's so horrifying because you know, they're being sent to their death, but here they are sort of doing in this kind of pose that you must have had as a child whenever you went to your friend's house and for me that's where the film works for me not in these kind of like big displays of violence well really for me it's both i mean those those two scenes you mentioned are fantastic particularly the one with and, and helen well, girl in red i might give you by the way but we can come on to that well well, see, Girl in Red for me is, I know this is actually something that comes directly from the book, because in the book, Schindler does see this this girl in a scarlet hat and a scarlet coat. And yeah. She's quite a pivotal kind of yeah. moment at which he realizes the full extent, the full horror of what's happening. And it's, it's the same yeah. in the film. But I think that's just something so sort of, um, in an entirely black and white film, I think the only other color in the film comes at the very end with a, a scene of the actual survivors laying stones on Schindler's grave and also from two candles at the beginning and end um, but this girl in red for some reason to me it's just sort of visually like in the book it works but visually with greatest respects to Steven Spielberg it feels like such a cheap ploy 
It's like your eye needs to go here and your sympathies need to go here. As if a load of other people around her weren't being killed. But uh, Spielberg has said in interviews that the girl in red is meant to, in a way, signify the sort of red flag of the, uh, the, the Allies could have known that there was, it, there is, it was clear to see what was going on and, and there should have been bombing of the tracks to Auschwitz and so on. And so she represents the red flag that the Allies should have seen. I must admit, you don't get in the film at all. No, I, no. I, I, I think what you do get is that is that slightly kitschy bit. That's it. And I don't. I'm not very keen on the bit right at the end of the film where he breaks down as well. About I was about to ask you about that. So, so for for listeners who don't know, this does not happen in the book. But at the end of the film, it, it sort of follows the book. There is a speech where you know Oscar tells everyone that sort of the Reich has fallen, Hitler is dead, the Allies have won. Um, and then this moment where he comes out of the factory and he promises to stay with the Schindler Jews uh, five minutes past midnight before he makes his escape. And in the book, this is a very sort of calm uh, sequence um, in which Schindler, I suppose, the, the significance of, in the book is that it represents this sort of reversal where after, you know, these years in which... Um, uh, the people in his care have depended on his largesse and his money for the rest of his life, he will be dependent on their care and their money because he will essentially be penniless after 1950. Um, in the film, what happens is that sort of Schindler comes out, he's given a ring in Talmudic verse as he, he is in the book, but then he has this kind of complete breakdown. This car. Oh, good, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This pin. Two people. This is gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for at least one. He would have given me one, one more. One more person. Person, Stan. For this. I could have become one more person. And I didn't. <laughs> and to be fair to Liam Neeson, like Liam Neeson's a great actor. It's affecting, you know, they, it works. But I think the, my problem with the film generally is reflected in that scene because in the film, it's a three hour long movie. And I feel like up until two hours and 15 minutes in, Schindler is pretty much like a gray area, if not a bad guy. And then all of a sudden, there's this flip to me it's way too sudden in the film so after like 45 minutes of him suddenly euphorically being like a good man you know um to then have him yeah, kind of break bit, down it's, a, it's a bit, too much he's a bit post ghost scrooge isn't he <laughs> that's a bit, bit harsh I, mean, I, I, I know what you mean i've been going on all about the character arc in the, in the film rather than the book and it's true that it really accelerates but he does get better and better in the book too as, as but but not quite not quite to the same extent of the film where he becomes pretty much full on yeah full on totally. but that breakdown at the end about i could have saved more 
Uh, that's Spielberg's answer, I think, to what we've been calling the Oliver Twist problem. He wanted to remind people of all the people who didn't make, remind viewers of all the people who didn't make it out. James, it's a it's a one word answer: book or film. It's so not a one word answer, Joe. There, was, there used to be a, a theory. God's sake, oh, James! Is. Uh, there used to be a theory that there's no great book that became a great film. It's not entirely true. This, but on the whole, great films are made of rubbish books, and great books become rubbish films. Plenty of exceptions, and one of the exceptions I think is this. I think it's a great book and a great film. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to sit on the fence there. That's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then go on. You 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 make it. You you go for it then. Book. Okay. Oh, you didn't. That's one all word. it took, James. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And that's it for our first The Booker at the Oscars episode on Schindler's Ark and List. To find out more about Thomas Keneally's novel, head to thebookerprizes.com. And also you can check the show notes for a handy article which details every single Booker Prize book that's been adapted into any film or TV series ever. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at The Booker Prizes and join our book group on Facebook. We'll be back next week with a regular episode, but do look out soon for another The Booker at the Oscars, uh, this time about The English Patient. Till next time. Bye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by me, Joe Hamier, and by James Walton. It is produced and edited by Kevin Moyolo, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It is a Daddy's Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes.